We're gonna we're gonna get started. Uh, our speaker today is Dr. Paul McCarthy. He's one of the attendings on the Neuro ICU, the CSICU, and the LRU. Uh, Dr. McCarthy got his bachelor's degree in chemistry at Case Western University. Did some graduate work, then went to medical school at Ross University in the West Indies. Internal medicine uh, residency training at the Caton Medical Educational, uh, sorry, Caton Medical Education Foundation in Caton, Ohio. Uh, proceeded to fellowship in critical care medicine at LSU in Shreveport, and uh, did a uh, dedicated ECMO fellowship at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm. Um, he's had academic appointments in the departments of neurosurgery, anesthesia, and internal medicine, and he's known locally and nationally for expertise in critical care nutrition, extracorporeal therapies, including ELAD, and uh, continuous renal replacement therapies. Uh, he has more than 20 abstracts that he's presented, at least eight peer-reviewed uh, peer articles, at least four book chapters. And today, he's going to be joining us um, to uh, teach us how to make the most of our uh, intensive care resources by choosing wisely in critical care. Dr. Can you hear me okay? Um, just so you know, I've, I'm not the best public speaker, so I tend to drift off. So if you can't hear me, just point me to the to the microphone, and I'll get get oriented. Uh, just for how many fellows know about this Choosing Wisely campaign, or how many anybody knows about it for that matter? Okay. Um, I, when I I talked to Mike McCurdy months ago about this topic, and it's it's not the most exciting topic, but it's actually probably one of the best topics in terms of resource utilization. And I was thinking about this as I was doing the topic, that's this really common sense, but it's not common sense, it's actually evidence. It's applying evidence uh, for our patients. And I was talking to one of my colleagues about, about this, and it's been written in a number of articles, and I'll explain that. And he's like, oh, I never, I never even heard about this. So I've, sometimes things that seem obvious to one group of people are not obvious to another. So hopefully I won't bore the, uh, too many people about this. Um, I'm going to briefly talk talk about what choosing wisely is, the background, how it how it came about, uh, the purpose and goals of this program, how how it was developed specifically to critical care medicine, and then the, the five points in critical care medicine. We'll kind of briefly go through the evidence supporting supporting this initiative. Just some background information: um, in 2012, we spent almost three trillion dollars in healthcare, uh, eight, 18 percent of the GDP. Over $100 billion was spent in critical care. We spend about twice as much in healthcare as Canada, England, France, Germany, and a number of other countries. Um, it's estimated about 30% of the healthcare dollars we use are unnecessary. It's just wasted money. And according to the Wall Street Journal and the Congressional Budget Office, uh, the, the amount of money we spend on healthcare is unsustainable. Uh, so Choosing Wisely uh, is a campaign that aims to promote conversations between clinicians and patients uh, regarding things that are done in their healthcare, specifically testing and treatments. And it, what it emphasizes is doing things that are supported by evidence, not duplicating tests and procedures, trying to be free from harming people, and doing things that are truly necessary. And we don't always do that. Uh, this initiative started after this um, article that was published in New England Journal of Medicine. It was a commentary by Dr. Brody. I believe he's in Texas, um, a medical ethicist. And he was making some comments about the health care reform. This was in 2010. And he was saying that uh, industry, 
insurance companies are, because of health care reform, are, ex are expected to cut costs and expected to take less profits. He also commented physicians are very unwilling to do that with their own incomes. Uh, but physicians also contribute to health care costs significantly because we order tests. We're the ones that actually order the test. And a lot of these tests are unnecessary, like I mentioned before. We do a lot of things that's not evidence-based. As a matter of fact, we do a lot of things that evidence uh, says you shouldn't do, both in terms of costs and helping patients. And he suggested we, as a group, pick, f pick five tests or treatment that are way overused, uh, of no benefit, and, and, and suggest bringing conversations about not, not doing these. And he suggested we do so many things wrong, five would be very easy, and we can focus just on the most egregious uh, incidents. And uh, it, by, by limiting to five things, it's, it's actually be, uh, something that uh, patients and families would understand and wouldn't be perceived as rationing care. It would just be things to discuss that we're really doing too much of. So that, that came about, and then shortly after, um, the National Physician Alliance and the, and the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation, through a grant, uh, promote, started the Promoting Good Stewardship and Clinical Practice um, Initiative. And they suggested coming up with these top five lists in family medicine, internal medicine, and pediatrics. And they got together and published these lists. And I actually, off the top of my head, don't remember them all, but they were things like uh, don't give antibiotics to people with viral infections, don't get EKGs on young people, things like that, very practical things. And later that year, this was published in our Archives of Internal Medicine, uh, a group went through and looked at the cost savings if, if actually f people followed these recommendations. They looked through um, two uh, ambulatory survey charts in, two, in uh, 2009. There was a significant number of people, thousands of patients, and they found out between 1 and 56 percent uh, tests that did not follow recommendations were actually being done, tests and or treatments. They looked at costs based on Medicare fees and, and uh, pharmacy costs. So if you got antibiotics for a cold, they, they figured out the cost of that. And they calculated costs at about $6.7 billion, uh, somewhere between 5 and $9 billion. And their conclusion was uh, $5 billion was a conservative, conservative estimate amount of money saved. So top five lists tops $5 billion. So after that, in 2012, uh, American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation and Consumer Reports launched, actually formally launched the Choosing Wisely campaign, and they enlisted nine uh, specialty societies, and they're, they're listed above. And each one of these came up with their top five list. Uh, the list, list got published. A lot of people made comments, um, and there was a lot of positive feedback in the medical, medical literature. There was also a lot of uh, positive feedback in popular press, Time Magazine, uh, these types of uh, consumer reports wrote articles on these. And um, the campaign was continued. And then in 2013, 17 additional societies came up with these lists. And through grants uh, from Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, uh, this, is, this campaign has been continued, um, where it's actually exponentially gotten bigger. Uh, now there's a, around 100 societies that have these top five recommendations, and there's just a, a list of, of some of them. And so it essentially covers all, all areas of medicine, and including critical care, which we're going to talk about the most today. Um, a number of uh, consumer organizations have partnered with uh, the Choosing Wisely campaign and endorsed it, AARP, LeapFrog, et cetera. This is just a short list. So it's really getting out there for, for um, families and patients to, to, to understand these, these um, top five. Um, how, are, how are these top five de de 
developed. Basically, societies are free to come up with their own list with these three rules. Each item should be written within the specialties purview and control, so ophthalmology shouldn't be talking about pap smears and vice versa. Procedures should be used frequency or carry significant costs, and there should be evidence to support your recommendations. Uh, choosing wisely, these are not true practice guidelines. They're designed to be conversations between physicians and families. Um, now obviously in the ICU, our patients themselves may not be able to have these conversations and more with, more with surrogates, but in, in other settings where it's a primary care, you, you, you should be able to sit down with your doctor and bring these up. And they should not be involved in coverage decisions. So insurance companies should not say, because you didn't follow these top five, we're not going to pay you. That's not the purpose. It's for conversations. So um, Critical Care Society Collaborative, composed of the American College of Chest Physicians, American Thoracic Society, Society of Critical Care Medicine, and the American College of Critical Care Nurses got together in 2012. And they established a 10-member task force, which included members from, from each society, included members from multiple disciplines, medicine, surgery, anesthesiology, emergency medicine, and nursing. So this really represents people that are out there practicing critical care. And the first task they were, they were told to is identify low-value practices, things that we do that are of low value, both to the patient and, and economically. And we want to rate these on strength of evidence, how much evidence there, prevalence, how often does it occur, aggregate cost, how expensive it is, how relevant it is to our practice, and how innovative it is. In other words, something that's already, uh, already accepted, already not done, we shouldn't be doing things. So we should be looking at things that are happening now that shouldn't be. Uh, the members uh, were told to make lists of between five and ten uh, areas, and uh, there was, were repeating, but, but essentially the first iteration they came up with 58 things. So there's a lot of stuff out there that people think we shouldn't be doing. This was narrowed down to 16, and then finally narrowed down to nine. And at the point when they got to nine, they actually brought in other members from other societies to, to add information. Uh, to review, review evidence, and then finally their, their list was made. These lists were then sent to the executive committee of each of these societies for more vetting. Uh, none of them got rejected by any societies. As a matter of fact, uh, the only thing that did change is some added additional evidence to support these recommendations. So they were really supported by societies. Um, and they were endorsed by each society in February 2013, and the Choosing Wisely campaign officially approved these recommendations, and it was first published in January of 2014. Um, some of the things that, that are, are unique about the critical care Choosing Wisely, it's actually composed of four societies. Most of, most of these recommendations are one or two societies. It includes nursing, which really, and uh, critical care nurses are at the bedside taking care of these patients quite a bit, so it's very, very reasonable to get them involved in the patient. They're very explicit about the criteria, the, the vetting process, was, and it was very transparent. So while, the, while these were being discussed, there were things being updated on websites such as Society of Critical Care Medicine, so people knew about this, it, it, um, and it was, it was a very open process. So what are the five things? Uh, do not diagnose uh, do not order diagnostic tests at regular intervals every day, but in response to specific clinical situations. Do not transfuse red, red cells in hemodynamically stable, non-bleeding ICU patients with hemoglobin concentrations less than seven. Do not use parental nutrition in adequately nourished, critically ill patients in the first seven days of ICU stay. Do not deeply sedate mechanically ventilated patients without specific indication, without daily interruptions to lightness sedation. 
And finally, do not continue life support for patients at high risk of death or severely impaired uh, functional recovery without offering patients and their families an alternative uh, of care focused entirely on comfort. Uh, so, so the first one, uh, diagnostic tests. Um, uh, uh, Dr. Netzer and I, this is one of our pet peeves, I have a number of them, um, uh, routine labs, ordering daily, just because you're in the hospital does not mean you need a CBC, and just because you're in the ICU you don't need one. We should order tests based on the clinical situation. Uh, some of these numbers, depending on your reference, may change, but the point, the point is what's more important. Uh, we, we draw a number of number of labs in our patients in the ICU. The first first study was over three per day. Um, and a lot of lot of blood, 40 mLs, anywhere between 10 and 80, depending on where you read. Uh, why do we order these? A lot of it is just out of tradition and convenience. Uh, I remember uh, when I was a medicine resident, I went to a conference, it was a poster, and actually, actually they compared two teaching programs in New York, and one where the residents had to draw bloods and the other one where they had phlebotomists. And the, the hospital where they, the residents had to draw bloods, they draw significantly less labs on patients. They had no problem not getting labs on those patients. So because labs are easy, if we have an art line in, a central line, we do, it's easy to click and order labs, and then we have something to talk about. It's, it's unfortunate, but it's true. Um, and we often order panels of labs instead of what we're specifically looking for. If we're concerned about somebody's hemoglobin, we, had, we order a CBC. If we're concerned about their white count, we order a CBC. If we're concerned about their potassium, we order a metabolic panel. If they're on a ventilator, we get a blood gas. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. I'm, uh, and phlebotomy contributes to anemia and transfusion. The more you phlebotomize patients, the more, like, more the anemia they're going to get, and the more likely they're going to get blood. Even in the ICU, the vast majority of labs we order are going to be normal in most patients. Even a very sick patient, their sodium may be normal, and the next day that's going to be normal, the next day, the next day. So just remember that. The vast majority of abnormals stay abnormal. So if you come in with a hemoglobin 8, the next day it's going to be low too. Um, and we never think about the pretest probability. I'm not going to discuss that too much and embarrass myself about statistics, but if we did a CBC on everyone here, it's very likely we're going to, everybody's hemoglobin is going to be normal. And the person that has an abnormal, it's probably, it's probably an erroneous test. What we're going to do if that comes back, we're going to order another test and take more blood from them. So the patient whose actually blood was low, their hemoglobin was low, we're going to, what we're going to do is take more blood to confirm it. Um, so this happens, a vicious cycle. Um, labs cost money, and they often do not improve outcomes. Over 10% of ICU costs go to tests, and, and, and the majority of tests in ICU are actually routine labs. Uh, this was a study published in Critical Care about four or five, four years ago, where they looked at uh, 93 patients in the ICU where their length of stay was greater than five days, and they were checking serial labs. Primarily, they were checking sodiums because they were either getting hypertonic saline or they were... Um, at risk of being hyponatremic, but they're also checking other labs. The average length of stay for these patients was 11 days. 75% of, of all the lab values were within normal range. Uh, the patients who got phlebotomized most had the biggest drop of hemoglobin. The average drop of hemoglobin in all patients was 2.5 grams, and there was a direct correlation between number of lab draws. Uh, specifically, the labs followed most often were sodiums and potassium, and uh, just less than 3% of the potassiums were, were below 3, and, and um, less than 5% of the sodiums were below 130. So more often than not, they're just chasing normals or low normals. And they estimated they spent about $2,200 per patient. And, and the conclusion was that maybe these routine labs aren't, as, aren't needed. Um, we do know anemia is associated with worse outcomes and 
in patients. We also know transfusions associated with work outcomes, and lab draws is one of the biggest contributors to anemia in, in the intensive care unit. Lab draws also are labor intensive. Someone has to draw the blood, whether it's a nurse or phlebotomist. It, it takes supplies, test tubes, has to be processed. Uh, most, most payments in the hospital are based on a G DRGs order, and extra labs does, does not help uh, the hospital from an economic standpoint, and, and there's medical waste. It costs $1,000 per ton to, to dispose of medical waste. Regular waste costs $100, $100 a ton. In 2012, University of San Francisco, their, their hospital lab spent $100,000 just, just um, on, on waste disposal, and the vast majority of that were things from routine labs, such as test tubes, um, and uh, there's no correlation between outcomes and the number of labs you get on patients. Uh, this was a, a poster at ATS a, a couple of years ago when the meeting was in Philadelphia, and it was a, a, a Canadian teaching hospital, 15-bed mixed med surge ICU, and as a policy, they eliminated routine labs, was not allowed. They, they had an education program for the house staff, nursing, had an indication list for laboratory, uh, had electronic prompts in the medical record to discourage you from ordering labs. Um, the year before this happened, the, the, the initiative took place. They were averaging 89 CBCs per week, 80, 88 chemistries per week, and, and a year after the initiative, it was 67 CBCs a week and uh, 67 chemistries a week. So they saw no difference in outcome, no change in number of stat labs, and actually a small decrease in the amount of transfusion. They saved over 2,200 lab draws and approximately $23,000 Canadian dollars. Chest x-rays, this, this is another one. Certain patients need them, but just because you're in the ICU on a ventilator does not mean you need a chest x-ray. There's been a number of articles about this. Um, the, the first uh, point, uh, Dutch study, they looked at over 2,400 uh, routine chest x-rays, daily chest x-rays because people were on ventilator. Saw, uh, abnormalities about 6% of the time, and most of them were very, very insignificant, a little bit of pulmonary edema, atelectasis, things that you probably knew. Only 2% were cl clinically relevant. Um, there's been a number of studies looking at um, abandoning routine chest x-rays and have, going to an on-demand strategy. Uh, there's been no, no shown difference in length of stay, mortality complications. And there are more case report type information of harms of chest x-rays. We've all probably heard stories of people got extubated while getting an x-ray or a line came out or fell out of bed. Uh, there are a couple case reports in the literature of infections being, trans, uh, being uh, related to uh, the x-ray people coming in, and there is a radiation exposure. Um, if you do have to do something to look at your patients, I recommend ultrasound. You can get as much or more information from your patients, effusions, pneumothorax, pulmonary edema, consolidations, pneumonia, endotracheal tube positioning, diaphragm function, all these things can be done by ultrasound. And we have a lot of people here that are very good at it. And all, all the fellows, by the time you leave your fellowship, are going to be proficient at ultrasound. So my recommendation, if you have to have something, get ultrasound. It's in real time. And get chest x-rays when you need them. Do not transfuse. Uh, red cells and hemodynamically stable non-bleeding ICU patients with uh, hemoglobin greater than seven. Uh, so what's good about transfusion? Well, it is an oxygen carrier, and it can help with oxygen delivery. It is a volume load if you need it, and it will raise your hemoglobin. If that's your goal, it does do that. What's bad about it? A whole bunch of other stuff. It's a volume, over, volume load to patients that may not need it. A significant increase of infection, um, uh, immunomodulation, uh, Transfusion overload, trolley, transfusion-related acute lung injury. It is more expensive. Uh, preparing for this talk, I saw a whole range of numbers from between 
250 to $1,000 for a blood transfusion. When you add uh, the cost of processing the blood and blood draws and stuff like that, it's probably closer to $1,000. Often there's no benefit from blood transfusions, and often there's even harm. Uh, that said, transfusion is very common in the ICU, and the most common reason to transfuse people is for anemia. You're transfusing for a number, not, not because of a clinical location. You have a number, and you want to make the number different. Um, I apologize. Uh, many people have heard this, this study too many times, but I, I, I feel I have to go to it. The, the TRIC trial um, was over 800 patients in, can in Canadian ICUs. They were eubulimic, anemic, hemodynamically stable. Stratified to two groups, restrictive strategy where they would transfuse with hemoglobin less than seven for a goal of seven to nine, and the liberal strategy where they were transfused uh, the hemoglobin less than 10 for a goal of 10 to 12. Uh, primary endpoint was 30-day all-cause mortality, and there was no difference in all comers. Patients with lower Apache scores and younger patients actually did worse. Uh, subgroups have been and analyzed in multiple studies, trauma, head injury, cardiovascular disease and mechanical ventilation, they've essentially gotten the same results. There's been other trials. There, are, there is mixed information about that. Maybe certain select groups would benefit, but in general, uh, patients with acute coronary syndrome, cardiovascular surgery, and even recently uh, upper, patients with upper GI bleeding have showed no benefit of a, of a liberal transfusion strategy. Uh, so when should we transfuse? Well, American Association of Blood Banks uh, recommends a restrictive strategy in, in, in transfusing with hemoglobins less than seven unless there's a clinical indication. Um, the Surgery Society, Society of Critical Care Medicine, which I believe Dr. Tisherman was on this task force, also recommends a restrictive strategy in hemodynamically stable patients. They also recommend to avoid transfusing based on a hemoglobin, and there's a whole bunch of indications where they say you may want to transfuse, but they're all based on clinical information, what's happening with the patient, symptomatic, bleeding, things like that. So. If you're going to transfuse based on a number, which you probably should never do, it's, the number now is seven. Um, but what are people doing? Um, the, this CRIT trial was, was uh, an observational study of almost 5,000 patients um, about five years after ABER's study. And they showed that about 44% of patients were getting transfused in ICUs. They were getting an average of four and a half units, and their transfusion average hemoglobin is 8.6. So people aren't, even today, aren't following it. Um, this other study, actually, uh, Dr. Netzer was, was part of, where they actually looked at uh, transfusions in uh, a number of hospitals in Maryland, uh, both prior to the TRIC style and after the TRIC style. It was about 73,000 patients. Uh, before the TRIC trial, about, there was about an 8% odds that you would get transfused, and then after, it was, it was actually 14.7, so it actually increased. Um, at the high volume centers, actually, in the later years of this trial, actually, the, the trend did start to dip down. And I believe if it was adjusted for the severity of illness, it wasn't quite as um, bad. But, but smaller centers, actually, there was essentially no difference in practice. So it's something we need to do. Uh, um, parental nutrition adequately nourished patients. Um, this, there's more controversy about this one, but definitely the cost and the, and the benefits are, are not significant. Uh, uh, Parental nutrition does supply caloric needs. Um, when you're not able to receive nutrition, you can get nutrition. So if you have uh, bowel surgery and a number of issues, and it can be life-saving for a certain percent of patients. But um, it does require dedicated access, requires lab monitoring, which could cause more blood draws, which causes anemia. There can be errors in the prescription. Uh, it's an easy way to overfeed patients. 
there is at least theoretical hyperglycemia risk and an infection risk, although that's starting to decrease if you look at the data. Uh, um, adipose and, and muscle cholecystasis, it's a volume load in certain patients and it definitely is more expensive. Uh, enteral attrition is optimal, I think most of us know that. About Depending on where you look, uh, up to 7% of patients, all comers in ICUs, get on parental nutrition, and they're usually started uh, before day seven. Uh, this TAP trial, which is one of the most recent randomized trials, looked at 2,300 patients, which were fed early 48 hours, which is based on the European recommendations, and, uh, and after day seven, which is your, the United States recommendation, seven hospitals randomized ICU. Patients that got parental nutrition late had fewer uh, infections, less cholestasis, and trends toward less mechanical ventilation and renal replacement. But the significant factor, there's essentially no difference in outcomes, and it was $1,600 cheaper for the patients who got parental nutrition late. These are nourished patients. Um, the other uh, study here, I have a meta-analysis that just came out uh, looking at early parental nutrition or early parental nutrition with um, enteral nutrition, and then there's a mistake on there. It's actually versus parental, late parental nutrition, and it's a meta-analysis of five, five studies uh, 4,600 patients, and they've essentially showed no benefit in parental attrition. There is a lot of mixed data in specific patients, um, uh, so so it, it really needs to be individualized. But the patient who's who's well nourished before they come to the ICU should not start parental attrition before before day seven. Do not deeply sedate mechanically ventilated patients without a specific indication, without uh, daily attempts to lighten sedation. Why do we sedate people? Um, safety and comfort, we do it a lot. Um, but deep and prolonged stations, sedation is associated with a lot of bad outcomes. Prolonged mechanical ventilation, increased length of stay, more tracheostomies, more neurotesting, more delirium, more debilitation. Uh, this, excuse me, this uh, classic, or this, this paper, um, Looked at the di diurnal sedation uh, changes during intensive care impact on uh, liberation from ventilation and delirium. 140 patients who were on mechanical ventilation for at least 12 hours and followed for up to five days. They looked at the amount of sedation used from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. and from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. There's uh, and they also looked at the dose if it was related to delirium and delay in uh, liberation from mechanical ventilation. And they, what they reported was at night there was a 40% 40, 40 of the patients had an increase in their sedation. And um, increased doses of sedation, regardless of when it was increased, correlated with more delirium and failure uh, spontaneous breathing trial. In my practice, it seems like it's 99% increased at night. Um, but uh, their conclusions were half the patients received more sedation at night, 75% uh, of the patients spent time, or patients spent 75% of the time uh, in coma or delirium, and outcomes may be improved by efforts to decrease daytime and nighttime sedation. Um, this paper by Kress uh, is really a classic paper where they looked at daily interruption of sedation and infusion in critically ill patients. 128 patients in randomized fashion and mechanical ventilation. Uh, they had two groups, those that had, um, had usual care, and the other group every day they stopped the sedation, a station holiday, station vacation. What they showed was length of event days on the, on the patients that got the sedation holiday was 4.5 days, and ones that uh, had usual care was 7.3 days. So they shaved a couple days off. The conclusions in patients who are receiving mechanical ventilation, daily in interruptions of sedation infusions, decrease the duration of mechanical ventilation, and ICU length of stay. Uh, this paper, they compared, they uh, 
added uh, spontaneous breathing trial with sedation vacation. Four centers, 168 patients randomized to two groups of an SBT or an SBT um, uh, with, with a sedation holiday. Um, the patients that had the sedation holiday um, with the SBT had three, day, three days less on the ventilator. ICU length of stay was three and a half days less, and the hospital length of stay was four and a half days less. They were also following these patients out a year, and there was less, less deaths in the group. The number needed to treat was just over seven. Conclusion, uh, uh, sedation holiday paired with the spontaneous breathing trial results in better outcomes mechanically ventilated patients. So what should we do? Um, and this information is um, from the PAD guidelines, SCCM. We should have a sp specific indication to sedate our patients. We should set target levels for consciousness. We should monitor sedation. We should use the lightest sedation possible. We should screen for delirium. Uh, we should consider intermittent sedation practices. We should treat pain first, but we shouldn't use pain medicines to sedate people. Pain medicines are for pain, and we should do daily in interruptions of sedation. Um, I don't know if people can read this, but I, it's been on my phone for years, but I, um, when I was in Louisiana, I was helping out at a, at a, a hospital and, um, for a week, and uh, there was a patient who was heavily sedated. I can't remember the details, but I remember boatloads of everything. The patient was trached, and I was asking the nurses, why is this person sedated? It doesn't seem like they need to be. And they said, oh, yeah, you don't understand, you don't understand. So after a day of fighting, Finally able to stop the sedation, patient was did nothing for another day, and then the patient woke up and wrote this. Um, and and I, I could read the whole thing, but in the interest of time, I won't. But essentially, what, I'll read a couple of things. And it's one of the few notes. Most of the time when people write stuff on the ventilator for me, I can't make it out. But I can actually read every word. Uh, I really did not like the night nurse Chuck. And then a bunch of little comments. And then uh, Chuck tripped over my cord and popped me off the vent. And then bottom, Chuck is very loud. So uh, maybe we sedate these patients because we don't, they don't want to tell on us. Uh, but this was a patient who had to be sedated. She had to be sedated. Actually, by the end of the week, she was off the ventilator. But um, do not continue life support for patients at high risk of death or um, severe, severely impaired functional recovery without offering patients and their families alternative care focused entirely on comfort. Um, this was actually from the Society of Critical Care Medicine's uh, website, uh, and, and they actually listed, I think there was a few other things, what is life support? So sometimes things that even physicians don't consider life support may actually be hydration, feeding, defibrillation, pacemakers, vasopressors, dialysis. Um, we, probably all of us have had this, but if we haven't, to some of the younger people, we will, where you have a conversation with the family where the, the patient's been on dialysis for five years, they've been on the ventilator for a week, they have a defibrillator that fires every other day, they have a peg tube for two years, they're on a whole bunch of drips, and you have a talk about the family and ask about their goals of care, and they say, well, he would never want any life support. Um, and, and I'm not making that up. That will happen if you haven't heard that. But um, uh, so life support. Uh, majority of patients at risk of serious illness um, do not want depend, um, dependence on life support. Only about one in ten would, would would choose aggressive life support measures if they were long, drawn out, painful, and resulted in um, uh, functional and cognitive impairment. Um, however. This is what we do with seriously ill patients. One in five patients dies in ICUs in this country. One in 15 patients over 85 die in an ICU. The average length of stay of patients that die in the ICU is 13 days. 
the cost is over $24,000, and that's uh, actually old data, 10-year-old data. Um, having discussions with family about, about goals of care leads in less ICU admissions, less mechanical ventilation, less CPR, and more hospice referrals. And there is a, a correlation between hospice referrals and quality of life, both for the, for the dying family member and for the family members uh, during this process and after. They rate their quality of life better. Uh, patients with prolonged ICU stays, are, uh, family members are actually associated with um, pathological bereavement. They're more, they describe a quality of life of their family member as worse, a quality of life that they've had uh, during watching their family member, um, and, and also more major depressive order, disorder. Um, I think the data in the ICU is, is, is emerging, it may not even exist, but in, definitely in the outpatient setting, patients with chronic diseases that are, are going to result in death, palliative care consults have shown to, to help tremendously. So it is recommended in the ICU to consider palliative care consults. And um, I'm going to finish quite early. Good. Uh, when I was going through these, I, I actually, it was last night I actually put this in. I was reading, it was in JAMA, it's, uh, an 81-year-old gentleman who had end-stage pulmonary fibrosis, was at a Grand Rounds, and um, they had some ethicists, some hospice people, and he had his family doctor and his son, and they were just asking questions about his, about his process and how he sees his life going, and he, he was DNR. And I just put a couple quotes. They're all not direct quotes, but they're just to, to, to kind of highlight some things. And, um, and I know this is one person who was, so it's very anecdotal, and he was, he, he was attending a grand round, so he's clearly not that normal patient. He was 81, but he mentioned that he's had a really good life, and he knows what he's been through, and he's been through a lot of bad stuff, and, and other people aren't around when he's suffering, and you know that can really, really cause a tear on you, and he's very ready, ready to die. Was actually, his doctor had the hardest time with all this than he, than he did. And his wife died many years earlier. She was quite young from a brain tumor. And he was mentioning that she had a very long, drawn-out process. She was in pain. She was suffering. And when she died, he, he said he wasn't holding her hand. And he, and he said um, he's never forgiven himself for like 30 years after that. And he said, um, you know, death is inevitable, and we need to prepare ourselves. And if, 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 if doctors aren't telling us about, about these things in our families, we're, it's, it's kind of unfair that we're not getting this information. And um, um, just because you're talking about someone dying, this is his words, uh, it doesn't mean you've given up on the patient, it's, it's, just, it's just being honest. And we need, to, we need to be honest with family members about this stuff. Um, that's it, it was kind of short and sweet. Any questions, comments? Thank you, Dr. McCarthy. I think that was superb uh, and a wonderful overview for all of us of very concrete steps that are increasingly the standard of care. So you presented a lot of great data, uh, sort of the, the leading edge of thought. I guess the question for you is, now that we know these things, um, what are the barriers to actually implementing some of these at the bedside, particularly you talked at length about uh, testing and testing strategies. How do we actually affect these at the bedside, both at the team level and at the systematic level? I guess we all kind of have, you know, medicine's so complicated, we kind of get these areas we're maybe more interested in. The, the, the lab thing is, is kind of one of my, I've been trying, and I, I guess I keep screaming, and it feels like no one listens, but I, I still keep trying. Uh, I know something that you're a champion of in the blood committee is not having things to make labs easy, so 
I know Epic is not going to have this. We can get labs every day thing. So trying for specifically for labs, trying to make things more difficult for for us, the providers, because we're all guilty of it. Even those that say we're not, we're all guilty of this. I, I, that's the only thing I can think about because sometimes I seem like I scream till I'm blue in the face and no one listens to me. Um, I do know because part of my practice is, is a, ho a hospital off campus that that um, uh, I've had some very heated discussions where people just um, quite say that evidence is wrong. No, this guy needs a blood transfusion. Um, but I I guess we should just you know really follow the evidence and do what's right. Specifically, the last the last one about uh, uh, being honest with family members and talking about this it's 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 incredibly difficult to have these discussions with family even today i've done a ton of them there's people who are ready more than me but they don't get easier in my opinion but i, I actually just got a letter a week ago i maybe it's because i haven't done good care but i can't remember family sending me a gift basket or a letter or anything for saving grandma's life but i routinely at least three four times a year get a letter Thank you, thanking them for the conversation and help helping answer questions, and that's uh, it, it's incredibly rewarding to get those things, and it will happen to you, and all of us have gotten that. But so it, it's a tough conversation, but that that's the thing. If you take the time to talk to families, because unfortunately we're all busy and a lot of people don't do it, you will you will be rewarded rewarded by that.